Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Always an honor and a privilege to get to serve with you in this way. Uh, Before we jump into our text, our message for this weekend, I want to just pause for a moment to celebrate uh, God's movement amongst our church family. Sometimes we we have some of these really significant moments and we just kind of let them pass by. And I think it's important for us uh, to give God the glory when these things happen. If you were here with us last weekend, you probably know what I'm talking about. And if you missed coming last weekend, well, then you really missed out on something special. As last weekend, we had the opportunity to witness 33 individuals from our church family get baptized. Awesome, yes. This is a tremendous step, one that I want to make sure, I hope you understand, no, this is not, we're not talking about this to showcase our church in any way, shape, or form, but instead the hope is just to bring loads of glory to God. He continues to work, he continues to move, he continues to draw individuals towards himself, and it's just such a great privilege and a joy to witness it and to get to serve alongside of countless individuals who are helping bring about God's hope and promises here today. So again, uh, thank you. Congratulations. If you were one of those who got baptized last weekend, we're so proud of your courage to share uh, your testimony with us both verbally as well as just practically physically in the tank. Okay, we are at the just past, just crossed over the halfway point of our Deeply Rooted series, a series that we've been focusing our attention on Um, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This weekend, we're going to be looking at what is likely the single most famous part of the sermon. It's the instructions that Jesus gives regarding prayer or how we should pray. Or more specifically, it's the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Now, before we jump there, I want to briefly look at the bookends of the Lord's Prayer section in the Sermon on the Mount. If you got uh, my email, our newsletter this week, you know that I encouraged you to look at both sides of those as well. Because it's in those two parts, those two sections, where Jesus gives some really practical teaching on how we shouldn't pray. The things that we shouldn't do as it pertains to to prayer. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 5 and work our way through. But here's what Jesus says. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into the private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need even before you ask Now, last weekend, in Pastor Greg's message, we we wrestled through some of this, how do we serve with our right hand, not knowing what our left hand is doing, and what is Jesus calling us to do? So the same practice, the same case is imagined for this weekend, in that Jesus, he's not saying here, don't ever pray collectively, You, you have to only ever pray privately, because we have specific instructions and and examples of corporate prayer and of its importance. And he's also not saying that that there's a word maximum count for your prayers that you need to make sure that you're operating within. What he is trying to help us with is to consider our, our heart and our motivation when it comes to prayer. What are you hoping to accomplish 
through your praying? What are you hoping to get out of the experience of prayer? He'll give very similar instructions regarding fasting or this practice of abstaining from food when he says this at the end of the section. Look at verse 16. He says, whenever you fast, don't be, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others but to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. So at its core, Jesus wants us to try and understand that when we participate in any sort of spiritual practices, if done to garner attention or gain praise for our actions, we're actually missing the point. We're doing it wrong. Because at the core, it's not about you at all. It's all about the father. He's saying, don't make a show about your spirituality or try to put on a production because that's making it about you, and it's not at all about you. Which then brings us to the Lord's Prayer. Now, liturgical prayer or praying other people's prayers for ourselves in a prescriptive sense is really important. It's something that we should continue to practice as it's a way for us to unite ourselves with the sacred scriptures and, and, and unite ourselves with the ancient ways. However, we've got to understand that that's not what Jesus is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. He isn't so much giving us the actual words that we are to pray as he is offering us a framework on how all of our prayers should look and sound and feel. This is why Jesus sets up this entire section by saying this. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. He doesn't say, therefore, you should pray this. He says, you should pray in a way that resembles this prayer. And so here's what then Jesus says in context. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I get it. Some of you, that doesn't sound familiar. Translations are different than maybe what you memorize. But this, I'm sure, for the most part, is a very, very familiar bit of Scripture for most of us. And here's the deal. The Lord's Prayer is not designed to be a magical sequence of words that we just pray and then abracadabra, we, we get what we want. Jesus isn't saying literally pray these identical words and it all comes together for you. But instead, he's trying to teach them as well as teaching us today, pray like this. Now again, in saying this, I still believe there's power and significance for us to pray this prayer together in the same way that Jesus himself prayed it. It's something that we can do that can unite us back to that moment to pray the same words that Jesus prayed, that the church has prayed for centuries. It, it matters much in the same way as what we just celebrated today. It matters. But what Jesus is getting at here is that this should be the framework that shapes all of our praying. And so if that's the case, then it would make really good sense for us, I assume, to understand the Lord's Prayer and to look at some of the themes that Jesus is including within it in order that it can help shape our own prayers going forward. So we're just going to pull it apart this morning and kind of see what it is Jesus is giving us instructions towards. He opens with this. He says, Our Father in heaven. 
pause there. Two things. Jesus is inviting us to address God as both intimately as our, as our Father, but then he immediately recognizes his infinite greatness. He is our Father who is in heaven. He's the one who we can have intimacy with as beloved sons and daughters, but he's also in heaven, meaning he's so much bigger and greater than us in our situations and our circumstances. He's both personally relational and at the same time, he's supremely divine. The prayer starts with an acknowledgement of who God is and who we are in relation to him. It focuses our minds on how God is both close but also infinite. And it immediately reminds us of who we are in and in whom we find our identity. God is our father, meaning you, we, me, we are his children. This is how we are to approach him, both as father but also as our sovereign king. Jesus continues. He says, your name be honored as holy. Now this part of the prayer can be lost on us as readers today because we don't treat names with the same significance and intentionality as people did during Jesus' time. But, but back then, your name was directly connected to who you were and what you did. We see this clearly even in the name of Jesus himself. In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the readers are reminded that the child would be called Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. His name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew word or Hebrew name Yeshua, which literally translates to deliver or to rescue. And so Jesus was named for who he would be and what he would do. And he tells the disciples, Jesus tells the disciples to pray that God's name would be honored as holy. His name would be honored as holy. Or another way to read this would be God as the one who is holy. We pray that you would be seen as holy and treated as holy by everyone in every corner of the earth. Jesus is, is saying, God, keep your holiness in, in front of us so that we can see it. Remind us of it. Don't let us forget that you are holy and set apart and divine and bigger and better than everything else. It's a way of posturing your hearts towards a God who's not just your buddy, but is also the one who's the Lord of absolutely everything, that we would never forget his holiness. See, our intimate access that we can have that develops a close relationship should not need to destroy our honor and respect for the king. We're to walk in both awe and reverence with our Father who is holy. We come humbly before a being who is unequaled in all of the universe. Jesus continues, your kingdom come. Now, there's two specific things that Jesus is trying to, to capture here. The first is the kingdom coming. See, the kingdom is not somewhere that we're going to go. It's not somewhere that we'll be whisked away to after we die or when Jesus returns. Instead, the kingdom, as presented for us all throughout the story of Scripture, is actually coming here to us on earth. Now, the Apostle John, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, also wrote the very last book of the Bible, a book called Revelation. And in Revelation, we read of John getting a look behind the curtain that separated the physical realm from the spiritual realm. Jesus reveals to John the things that are taking place spiritually in the background to the physical, and he also points towards things that are yet to come. And this is what John records in Revelation 21. 
He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with him and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Jesus is clear. God's kingdom is not going to be somewhere else. It's here on earth. It's a recreation. It's a restoration of God, making things perfect again the way they were in the very beginning. Jesus prays, your kingdom Come, But there's a tone in the text that, that the translators of the CSB miss that the NLT actually picks up on when they translate this to read, Your kingdom come soon. Do you resonate with that? Soon, please soon. You look at the world around, you look at everything that's happening, you look at your life, your family, your situation, it's just like, Jesus, come soon. We know you're going to come. But soon, this is all about urgency. We understand, I hope you understand, that there will be an actual day when God's kingdom will finally and fully be united with the earth, where Jesus will return and God rules for all of eternity. Jesus says that we need to long for that moment, for that day to come soon. Jesus himself, he kick-started the kingdom's coming with his mission on earth and his death and resurrection made a way for God and man to finally be completely reconciled. His sacrifice has already made a way for things to start to be put right again. And here's what's really, really wild, at least if we take Jesus serious on his word here, is that our prayers actually help bring about God's kingdom to realization. That's what, that's what we're getting at here. Be it prayers for others to, to know and experience God and his kingdom, prayers for, for healing here on earth, prayers for peace. We actually play a part in bringing about God's kingdom here on earth by the way that we live alongside of and with Jesus today. You're praying it actually brings God's kingdom here today. I mean, that's crazy. With his kingdom not fully here, we know this, it's still very not finished. We find ourselves as followers of Jesus in this sort of in-between, between what Jesus began and what he'll finally come to accomplish. And so we are called to intercede between the two worlds, praying for it to be finally and fully fulfilled. Next, Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, a really important key for us to understand here that, that, that we can't see without knowing the original language a little bit more is that last part there, the on earth as it is in heaven, actually pertains to all three parts of the prayer that we've just read. It's not just God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but also it's about God's name and his kingdom. Jesus is saying that we should ask and desire for all three of those to be realized here on earth as it is in heaven, that God's name would be known and be kept holy on earth as it is in heaven, where his holiness is supreme, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, meaning it would be here just as it is there in perfection, and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's connected to all three. 
But this part of the prayer is all about acknowledging that God's will is ultimately so much of greater importance than our own. Now, I get it. When it comes to prayer, we think we know what we want, right? How we want it, and when we want it. And so we pray for things often in that way. At least I do. Maybe I'm way less spiritual than most of you. But I've prayed prayers like this before, and I wonder if you have too. They go like this. Oh, God, please bless the plans that I have laid out on my own before you, in the timeline that I have for you, with the outcomes that I've asked of you. Amen. But Jesus, he's teaching us surrender. Trust in God's plan and God's will. And these, I know, are really difficult prayers to pray. Because from our perspective, we think we know what's, what's best. Our intentions are usually good. We think we know what's best and what needs to happen and when it needs to happen. But as I get older and as I walk through more and more of my own faith journey, I realize that time and time again, that God's plan is always, always better. So much better. I meet people all the time. I'm sure you have met people who say things like this as well. They say, I'm so glad things didn't turn out the way that I wanted them to. Had they of, I would have seriously been in trouble. We think we know what's, what's best, but our plan and our view of what's to come is, is really limited. But God's view, on the other hand, is actually unlimited. Now, Jesus himself would profoundly put this practice of prayer into action on his last few days on earth. On the night of his betrayal, knowing full well the weight of all that was going to be coming his way, falling to his knees in anguish before the Father, alone in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded these desperate words. He said, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Please, please, if there's any other solution, any other way that doesn't involve the cross and my separation from you, let me have it. Jesus longed for a different plan, something that would cause less pain and separation. But he knew, he knew that the only way for God and man to be reconciled once and for all was by his death and his resurrection. And so he concludes his prayer by saying this, nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. It's a prayer that says, I want you, God, to lead because you know better. You're the one who, who holds the secrets to the ultimate plan. You can see the end, which I simply cannot and will not ever see for myself. And so I trust you and I surrender. I trust that you know what's best for me and for my relationships, for my education, for my job, and for the calling that you've placed on my life. And in a world that can feel so confusing, I choose to lay down what I think is best for me for what you know is best for me. Jesus goes on. He says, next, give us today our daily bread. Again, we probably don't see and recognize the imagery that's being used here right away in this moment, but the listeners that are hearing this from the words of mouth of Jesus himself would have instantly recognized that he was talking about the manna from heaven. 
As Israel wandered in the wilderness after the exodus, they found themselves extremely hungry without any means of satisfying that hunger for themselves. And so God provided miraculously this thing called manna. It was this sweet bread-like substance that literally fell from heaven every morning for the people. But there was a deal that God had. God made specific instructions when it came to how much manna the people were to collect. They were to take only what they needed for that day, or they were to take their daily bread. Yes, thank you. There we go. You're seeing it now. Every morning they could trust that what was needed for that day would be provided for them exactly when they needed it. And if they tried, which they did, if they tried to store up more for themselves for that day, they'd wake up the next morning to find that the leftovers they tried to hoard would be rotten and full of maggots. And all of this was designed by God to carefully and practically lead the people to understand their daily dependence on him. To show them that God would show up, that he would provide for them exactly what they needed, exactly when they needed it. And so Jesus teaches us to pray in the same way. It's a posture of our hearts which says, I trust you, God, will meet my needs today in such a way that I will still look to you and depend on you again tomorrow. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Now, full stop here. I've met so many people who make the assumption that the whole Christianity thing, faith thing, revolves around one's ability to live a perfect, flawless life. That the end goal is flawless perfection on our part. But right here, Jesus, speaking with those who were the closest to him, his inner circle, he's teaching them that every day they need to come to God to receive his forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus knew that that perfection is unattainable. Regardless of who we are or what we think we're able to accomplish, we still daily need to frame our prayers around our need for forgiveness. We need ongoing forgiveness from God for our mistakes and for our broken choices because this is just a lifelong process. Faith is not about my ability to achieve perfection. Instead, it's all about my humble acknowledgement and dependence on a forgiving and merciful and gracious Father. We ask for forgiveness, but then look at the very next line. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now this is so important. And the simplest way that I could say this, that maybe you would remember this or take it with you, is this. Forgiven people forgive people. Say that with me, okay? Forgiven people forgive people. Thank you for the four of you that said it with me. I'm sure the rest of you said it in your hearts and it's just in there. It's deep. I believe that. But here's the deal. It's wrong for me to ask something from God that I'm not willing to offer then to others. If we ask and long for, for God's forgiveness, the best, then we best be ready and willing to extend that forgiveness to those around us as well. As people who've been radically forgiven by a God who doesn't have to forgive us and who does so every single day, we are to be found as the people who offer that same forgiveness to those around us, even those who hurt us and cause us harm. We forgive others because we have been forgiven. 
That's the source of our ability to forgive, to see the massive debt that we owed be covered entirely by a gracious and glorious Savior should lead us to be able to forgive the debts that others owe to us. Jesus was so intent on this that after he finished teaching the prayer, he wanted to give just a little more subtext, some footnotes. He's wanting us to pay attention to this. Here's what he says after the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. I don't know if Jesus can make it any more practical than this. If forgiveness is at the core of who God is, and God is to be at the core of who we are, then the expectation is that we would reveal his forgiveness into the world all around us. And if we don't, we're actually misrepresenting him entirely. And I get it. Some of you actually have a really hard time with a concept like this. Because you've been really hurt. Or you've been, you've been really let down by others. And the thought of forgiving certain individuals really messes with you. And I get that. But here's the deal. Forgiveness does not mean that things have to go back to the way that they once were. It doesn't mean you have to embrace your offender and, and love the one who's hurt you all over again. Nor does forgiveness mean that you're required to supernaturally somehow forget all that's happened to you. Instead, at its core, forgiveness is just giving up your right to getting even, or turning over your right for justice to be done, or in taking revenge for yourself, turning it over to God. Forgiveness says, I, I could get back at this person if I wanted to, but Lord, instead, I'm going to trust them and the situation. I'm going to turn them, the people involved, all of it over to you, and trust that you are good and that you are also just. And then having the confidence to believe that he'll do what needs to be done. And something really significant happens when you're able to release the bondage of, of unforgiveness or even hatred that holds you down. It's so important. And this is what Jesus says to do. We forgive because we have been forgiven, period. Now wrapping up the Lord's Prayer, the final part, Jesus instructs us to pray this. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, praying for our, our needs to be met and for forgiveness and for offering forgiveness, all of these things are really kind of focused on our own situation, things that are within our own control and, and our choice. However, Jesus seems to shift gears here to remind his disciples and also remind us that the world we live in, though very physical, also contains within it a spiritual reality. And within that spiritual reality, a battle's actually being waged each and every day for your soul. Jesus asks us to pray against temptation, against the things that might lure us into making choices that ultimately keep leading us back to needing forgiveness again and again and again. He prays that we would get to the root of that which causes us to stumble, that we would be kept from it and made stronger through it so that we can face it in hopes to maybe break the cycle. So we pray for protection from temptation, but we also pray for protection from the enemy, from the evil one, from God's adversary from the devil and his dominion. Jesus teaches all throughout the gospels that the devil wants you to stumble. He wants you to fail. He wants you to fall. And he's working tirelessly and relentlessly to try and trip you up. 
And Jesus himself knew the power of the enemy. He faced him head on early in his ministry. Jesus knew that all of us would face adversity when it came to our faith. He knew that that he himself would need to walk the road of utter darkness alone. And his prayer was that his followers who come behind him and after him would be spared from it. See, we follow a crucified Savior, so we should never assume that we'll be spared from darkness. But instead, we come asking God to protect us and to guide us through it. Not to keep us from the enemy, but to deliver us from the enemy. And we all look forward, eagerly forward, to the day that will come when Jesus will once and for all time conquer the enemy and bring about his lasting and final light to all the darkness in our world. We pray for protection. And we pray for his final victory to come. And this is how we should pray. This is the Lord's prayer. This is the framework that Jesus himself gave to shape all of the prayers that we pray. I mean, what better way to try and communicate with our God than by the very way that he taught us to do so? Now, when we design these services, we meet on Tuesdays every week and we talk about what we're going to do in this space on the weekend together. And one of our values that we have when it comes to creating experiences and weekends like this is that we aim to demystify things that we do around here. We want everyone to be able to know what it is that we're doing and why it is that we're doing it. Because there's some of you here every single weekend that are like me and and you didn't grow up in and around all of this church stuff. And so some of the things that church people do in church settings like this can look and feel a little bit weird. And so we work really hard to make sure that everything we do is is accessible and understandable and demystified. And prayer is one of those things. It's one of those things that can feel inaccessible or something that's really only reserved for those who are really eloquent with their words or for those who are spiritual enough or for those who have enough experience with it all. Prayer can seem lofty, even strange, and sometimes downright confusing. I know this firsthand. I work with a group of guys who most of this faith stuff is really foreign, and on Friday of this week, I carefully invited them into a posture, some discomfort as they practiced for the first time some listening prayer. And because this is so foreign, many people often feel timid or afraid or just unsure of how to engage a holy God in a personal conversation. And so what often ends up happening is they just don't even try at all. This is why we try to to make prayer significant around here and and accessible around here. It's why we have a text number that you can can message to say, "I, I don't know how to pray, but will someone pray for me for this situation in specific? This is why I love that Jesus gave us a parable. Or a story with a, a meaning behind it that I think helps us wrap up this whole weekend together. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 18. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing, praying like this about himself. God, I thank you like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far saying, 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than there. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Prayer doesn't need to be complex. I hope you know that it's not out of reach of, of any of you. God just simply longs for your heart to want to connect with his heart and just be present with him, be honest with him, be open towards him, and to just have a conversation. And when we do that, Jesus is so clear that the Father turns his ear towards us. He listens, and he actually responds. Maybe not in the ways that we've planned for him to respond, but he responds. And then his kingdom gets a little bit closer to being realized on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to pray. We're, we're all done here. We have a prayer team on weekends like this. Gabe already told us that. They have lanyards on. They've been trained. Um, they are people of confidence. They, whatever is shared with them stays between you and them. Um, and they love nothing more than to sit with individuals in our family who just are looking for someone to hold their prayers with them. And, and we can't promise or guarantee ever that, that your prayers will be answered in the way or in the timeline that you want them to be answered. But we do guarantee that if you come and have a moment with one of our prayer members, that you will have an experience of being deeply loved and cared for by the, someone who just wants to simply, again, hold your prayer with you and for you and bring it to God. And so if you're feeling a sense of, you know what, I need to, I need to pray with someone, I'd encourage you, don't just spit out of here really quick. Um, those team members will be down here right at the front. Come and have a conversation and take that next step. But let's pray. God, thank you for, thank you for who you are. Um, thank you for the access that you have given us. This is so foreign to most every religion in the world that you've provided a way for us to be close and intimate with you. Um, it's just a, a tremendous gift of grace and kindness. And so we, we praise you for that. And I pray that we would continue to keep your holiness at our forefront, knowing and, and holding these two tensions of, of your, your deep love and intimacy for us, but also um, a deep reverence of, of how great and glorious you really are. I pray that, that we would continue to, to experience prayer, that we would continue to look for ways and places and times and, and opportunities for us to get more and more deeply rooted as followers of Jesus. And this is just one of those ways. But I pray that we would take you seriously at your word, the instructions that your son has given us on how we could shape some of the things, put words to the things that, are, that stir in our hearts often that we long to bring to you to talk with you about. I pray that our, our prayers would be shaped um, differently because we have dug into the words of your son. And I pray for moments and glimpses of just seeing your work and, and our work of interceding on behalf of ourselves, on others, that we would see moments of, of you answering prayer and that they'd be little tokens and gifts along the way that would help us to see that, that this isn't just something we talk about but that you are actually real and that you're working, and that you're moving, and that this matters. 
And so inspire us towards what could be if, if we became a body of people who were praying, praying, praying in the way that you've instructed us to pray. So thank you, Jesus. Give us a great uh, week ahead, we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for being here again. If you want to be prayed with or prayed for, come down to the front. Otherwise, have a great, great week.